have announced that they have got a land deal in Las Vegas. They have abandoned negotiations with the city of Oakland. We're out here because we're angry. The A's are very important Bay Area to the East Bay. I don't understand how you can let this go. Just like the sign says, the A's have been playing here since the 1960s. That's long enough for generations to grow up making memories here at the Coliseum, becoming lifelong fans of a team that now could be packing to leave town. How long have you been coming to A's games? All my life. As long as I can remember. Ever since he was a little kid, yeah. he's an A's fan. Let's go, Austin! Tell me about some of your favorite Coliseum memories. Ah, the World Series. My dad taking me out of school, don't tell anyone, to come watch the A's. I remember the days when I was a kid, when I was a child, every seat was packed. Just scope around over here. It was not always like this. These are all loyal baseball fans. They're coming because they love baseball. And we love the A's. We don't have a lot of fans, but the fans that come here, we're diehard fans. We might be the worst team in baseball. It's like that movie Major League where they really want the team to fail. What do you think could happen to change things? New ownership. John Fisher is not the guy who is equipped for this team. He sells away all our best players. Does not care about us, the fans, and certainly doesn't care about the city of Oakland. I want them to sell the team. They mentioned Vegas. It's like, okay, we have to do something. And this is it right here. We want John Fisher to sell the team to a local business person that can afford to keep the team in Oakland. This is our team, this is my city, this is our city, this is your team. When you see an A's hat walking down the street, you don't think of who pitched last night, you think of Oakland. Oakland has character, it's got personality. Stay in Oakland or sell the team. Sell the team! Would you go see the team in Vegas? No, I would not, no. I mean, if I had the money to, yeah. I might go to one a year. You're not going to Vegas. I'm not going to Vegas. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey gang, Tim Hanlon here. How you doing? It's good seat still available. As you might know by now, it's the, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. I appreciate you finding us. And uh, I don't know, are the A's going to go to Las Vegas? I don't think it's uh, too early to start uh, speculating about maybe what will essentially become the former Oakland A's, not a not a team that's uh, sort of uh, scared, it seems, of, of moving every couple of decades. Uh, perhaps the most um, moved franchise in, in baseball's history. Uh, and our guest this week, Andy Dolich, is the excuse to kind of get into kind of where we are right now. We're recording this in May of 2023. And uh, as of this moment, there are I don't know. I think it's the second now uh, location in Las Vegas that supposedly is like the real deal this time. Uh, the door is essentially shut on Oakland, uh, getting its uh, final chance to, to potentially keep uh, this Oakland A's baseball franchise. Um, Andy's new book uh, is uh, co-authored with uh, sports writer Dave Newhouse. It's called Goodbye, Oakland. Good title. 
for this episode, winning Wanderlust in a sports town's fight for survival. And ostensibly, uh, my uh, outreach to uh, to Andy was to um, kind of circle around this conversation, around the A's and around the city of Oakland, which, you know, 50 years ago or so was um, uh, almost in the reverse position. It was almost the, uh, the beacon of hope, uh, the uh, land of opportunity for many leagues that were seeking West Coast expansion or relocation or, or birthing brand new teams um, with the Oakland Alameda Coliseum uh, back at it was known in the day, the uh, indoor arena there, of course, with the Oakland Oaks and the ABA, as we talked to our pal uh, Pat Boone a number of years ago, uh, helped to sort of usher in the beginning of that uh, building, which uh, obviously the uh, now Golden State Warriors uh, abandoned for uh, supposedly greener pastures across the bay in San Francisco in the Chase Center. Uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, this is kind of a referendum, I think, uh, on you know the city of Oakland and and what it is, what it was, and perhaps where it's going, um, you know, and uh, abandonment and all that kind of stuff, right? So, um, our conversation, obviously, the hook for that was uh, this new book, which is, is is a great read and really put a kind of sets the tone um, for, I think sort of the backdrop of what, what this a situation is all about. There's obviously a lot of, a lot of other situations sort of playing around here in terms of, you know, how cities are, you know, pushing back on, on public subsidies and all that kind of stuff. But, um, to understand Oakland's uh, past, uh, its present and its, um, uh, potential futures, uh, I think this is a really good setup for that. And then the book is laden with uh, various stories and anecdotes about, uh, sports in Oakland and and it's a promise and it's a pr- the premise, if you will, and um, you know the maybe you know sometimes the uh, abandoned um, follow throughs, shall we say, of of what was originally promised. Now uh, I do have to sort of preface this conversation with the following: we get to the uh, conversation around Oakland kind of near the end of this conversation because uh, I actually kind of was uh, intrigued and fascinated with uh, Andy's. Um, uh, professional sports management career uh, that led him to uh, the Oakland A's in the first place. Uh, Andy lives in the Bay Area and has been there for for many many years. But the reason he ultimately uh, got there was his um, 15 years with the A's from 1980, just after Charlie Finley left town uh, to the delight of many, until 1994. So Andy Dolich knows of what he speaks. Um, But as we get to sort of uh, the Oakland conversation, um, it's fascinating to to hear where he was before that, uh, especially for a podcast like this. Um, I'll let him and us kind of get into that conversation. But one of his first jobs was, wait for it, as business manager for the Maryland Arrows of the National Lacrosse League, the original one from 74 to 76, that two seasons there. Uh, a few previous conversations that we've had about uh, the old time uh, indoor uh, box lacrosse kind of thing. Our pal Steve Holroyd was uh, part of that, uh, if you may remember. Uh, search that episode up, uh, a fascinating one at that. Uh, but what uh, what a fascinating place to cut your teeth as a professional, uh, trying to get a, a fledgling indoor lacrosse league going in the mid-1970s. Um, this is with the Washington Capitals – uh, after that, and and a lot of sort of Washington D.C. related sports, including, wait for it, the Washington Diplomats of the North American Soccer League from '78 to 1980. So we do spend quite a bit of time, kind of uh, focused on those two gems of 
uh, memories uh, lost and forgotten. Uh, and obviously what uh, led up to him becoming uh, a senior member of the management team with the A's during the 80s and the early 1990s. Um, and alas, uh, we did not get to some of the other uh, very interesting stops and, and clients and places that that he's worked at. And, and we're going to save that for another episode um, soon to come because uh, we just ran out of time. Uh, but uh, if you're a fan of the Vancouver Grizzlies situation now, obviously living in Memphis, uh, you will want to stay tuned for that. A follow-up episode because that's where uh, that's where Andy went after the uh, after the A's for most of the 2000s, uh, and has uh, done a lot of uh, consulting and um, advisory work uh, for lots of other uh, places and situations that uh, we are uh, fascinated by. But uh, we'll we'll get to that in that conversation when that occurs. But for now, we're going to at least try to focus on uh, the Oakland. Uh, California uh, situation today with the A's, its place in sports history as a professional big league city and all that stuff uh, coming up in a few moments time. Uh, It's a tremendous uh, insight. Uh, Andy is rich uh, in stories and uh, and knowledge about all kinds of sports uh, and uh, is uh, exceedingly well equipped, equipped, he says, to um, uh, to discuss sort of the uh, the role of Oakland and and why the A's are leaving and and perhaps uh, why they shouldn't be uh, in just a few moments time. Let's uh, before we do that though, I want to shout out to uh, one of our long standing uh, sponsorship friends, and those are our pals at Royal Retros, RoyalRetros.com. Um, as the name implies, they are the kings of throwbacks, and uh, you've heard me uh, gush about them. Uh, oftentimes, um, and uh, as as you well know by now, the uh, Royal Retro's collection of uh, handcrafted, uh, lovingly created, historically accurate uh, jerseys, uh, caps, uh, and, and of course the uh, traditional T-shirts and, and snapback hats and those kinds of things are all there for you to find. Now you pick a league, you pick a team, uh, and a sport, you're likely to find uh, a treasure or two or seven. Uh, that you're going to love. And one of the cool things about royalretros.com is you go to uh, their menu and you can just click on various leagues that might be interesting to you, uh, all kinds of different uh, collections, uh, whether they be on uh, uh, you know, jackets and um, uh, proposed teams that never made it, those kinds of things. But if you go to the regions section and click on, in this case for today's episode, uh, the Bay Area tab, and uh, what will you find there? Well, of course, tons of teams, some of which we'll talk about today, some of which we will not get a chance to talk about. Uh, but, I, you know, some amazing finds. Yeah, the San Jose Sabercats of the uh, old Arena Football League. That's great. Uh, some Oakland Oaks uh, baseball jerseys and and um, the uh, uh, Oakland uh, Oaks um, ABA franchise stuff is remembered there. There's also a hidden gem there, too, though, the one that I didn't even know about this team existed. The Oakland Larks. Of Negro League Baseball. Yeah, the Oakland Larks. They played from uh, 46 to 48, uh, and they were part of this thing called the West Coast Negro League. And um, just a gorgeous jersey, uh, and it'll be the uh, – you'll stand out at, at parties for sure with this one. People will go, what's the Larks? Um, but that's the kind of cool and fascinating stuff that you're going to find 
uh, endlessly at royalretros.com. Check them out. It's not just the Bay Area, but you, you, you'd be surprised at what you're going to find from all kinds. And it's all kinds of new stuff, new old stuff, if you will, coming by the month. Again, it's royalretros.com. And of course, we have a promo code for you. How about saving 10% from all of your purchases? Of course. Why not? Use the promo code SEATS. Just one word, SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, 10% off all your purchases uh, at checkout, uh, uh, courtesy of our pal Dustin Alameda and his friends at royalretros.com. Check them out. As they say, you'll be glad you did. That was my little tagline. It's not theirs. Okay, so let's uh, waste no more time, and uh, let's talk about Oakland. Let's talk about the Bay Area. Let's talk about the A's. Let's talk about all of it and the lead-up to the uh, career that Andy Dolich continues to have. Fascinating conversation, uh, and I am uh, proud to present it to you. Here it comes. Please, as always, enjoy. I think some people in our audience may know of you or have heard of you. Maybe for the the rest of the audience, uh, maybe a little bit of background as to... Um, your uh, professional career, because you've been in and around uh, sports for a long time, and then maybe also a little bit about your, shall we say, unique POV on the Bay Area, too. Sure. Well, first of all, Tim, it's great to uh, meet you, and uh, I look forward to our conversation, which may be over as soon as I go through my timeline of what I've done in the world of sports. Uh, but I'll, I'll try to zip through it. Um, I am anybody's poster child. If you're listening to this or will be listening to this, I am the perfect example that if you want to work in the world of sports in any way, shape or form, if I could have done it, you can do it without question. Um, now, uh, I was lucky enough to go to the first sports management school in the country, Ohio University. And Tim, I'm not even sure you know this. It was the idea of Walter O'Malley the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, and this was in the mid-60s, the 1960s, not the, not the 1860s. And Walter O'Malley was a futurist. He saw that there was going to be an incredible expansion in the world of sports. And he wanted people to be trained and understand what that business was going to be. Um, now, if you can believe it, Tim, there's over 400 sports management programs in the United States alone. Is that mind blowing? Yeah, uh, I was I was familiar with uh, the Ohio University's uh, uh, origination of the discipline. I was not aware that O'Malley was uh, part of it. That's an interesting tidbit. Yeah, we'll talk about that uh, maybe when we visit again in the future, because that whole area is incredibly exciting for young men and women that want to get in the industry. Uh, so here's a quick one. Um, before you get your degree, a master's in sports management, and I graduated in 1970, um, I went to work for the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, it was a dream come true. I'm a basketball fanatic, a hoop head, and holy mackerel, I'm working in the NBA. All I will say is that the Sixers, uh, a year after I got there, set a record which will never be broken in the history of the NBA, we went nine and 73. We went nine and 73. Um, so uh, run to chaos and disaster. I was there for three years. I went to uh, professional box lacrosse, which still exists. 
Then I went over to the Washington Capitals of the NHL. All right, before then we, I, sorry, we got to stop there because ostensibly we're going to be talking about the, the Bay Area, but I, you know, we, I don't want to. We'll screw it <laughs> if we if we don't get through the entire thing in this conversation, we'll do it again. But the National Lacrosse League has been something that has crossed our path, and I'm not talking about the current version, right? About the mid '70s version, it was around. That was me. The, okay. the Maryland, the Maryland Arrows, the Philadelphia Wings, the uh, Montreal Quebecois, um, the Boston Bolts, the Long Island Tomahawks. Holy mackerel! It was yeah. great. So, so how do you, um, how did you get involved with that? Because I'm guessing your work with the Sixers, right, got you into the realm of uh, arena management and, uh, shall we call it, uh, other sports to potentially fill those arenas, inclusive of the Spectrum at that time, right? Right. It's the simple three letters: ABS. Always be selling. Um, not so much in the operations of buildings, but putting butts in seats. And when you're trying to sell season tickets, Tim, for a team that's just come off a nine and 73 season, um, that'll put you to the test. So one of the owners of the Maryland Arrows happened to be a Philadelphian. And um I was involved in some early types of promotions, which got us some ink and attached my name to it. And he went, hey, here's a guy in Philly. Let me talk to him. We're going to own this team that plays in the same building um, as the Washington Capitals um, and the uh, the, uh, Bullets at that time, right? Uh, They hadn't changed their name yet to the Wizards. And so I was hired by a guy named Bo Rogers um, to sell tickets and to market and to be in charge of the business operation of the Maryland Arrows. And we did pretty well. We played at the old Cap Center um, and we averaged about 6,500 a game. The most successful team was in Philly. The Wings and the Flyers were doing great in hockey and lacrosse, uh, major Canadian sports at that time. Uh, the wings did really well. They were doing like 15,000 a game. And I really enjoyed my time there. Some of the hardiest athletes that I've ever seen in my life. These guys could really hand it out and take it. Um, okay. So before we run off of that, uh, two things. Number one, uh, the surface and the rowdiness of the sport and the crowds, fairly new for uh, the American, I guess, populace who was not familiar with the outdoor game, which is a lot less brutal, shall we right. say. And then second, uh, why did it only last two years in your mind? Well, I'll answer the last question. I think there were eight teams in the league. And after two years, as you said, uh, six teams folded. It's pretty hard to have a league with two teams, I think, Tim, even though you've looked at lots of different leagues. Um, And the Arrows were one of the teams that didn't fold. Uh, I seem to remember a meeting that was held, an owner's meeting that was held at the posh plaza hotel in new york and if you're about to fold why are you going to one of the most expensive hotels in new york city to have a league meeting anyway um box lacrosse hard to believe but there were players who played in the nhl rick dudley doug favell who were both really good players dudley for the buffalo sabers favell for the philadelphia flyers 
Um, they played uh, lacrosse in the summer to keep in shape. So a lot of young people, a lot of young guys, because it was a, a, man, a man and boy sport at that time, when the outdoor rinks um, got warm and the ice melted, you still had an arena, a rink. And that's how box lacrosse came about in Canada. Tim, that's at least my understanding. So these guys were running around on grass, uh, running around maybe on asphalt, and they were tough. Um, when the sport was uh, launched as the National Lacrosse League, uh, we played on AstroTurf. But these guys could have played on concrete. It wouldn't have bothered them. They were that tough. Yeah, I do think, though, I remember seeing some film. There's a, there's a little bit of it still out there. Uh, there was a couple of games, I think, actually Philadelphia visiting uh, Long Island, and it did look right. like there was actually the naked boards sans uh, artificial turf with all yeah. replete with the, uh, I guess, the hockey markings or whatever. So it looked like it was a regardless. I mean, it had to be even if there had been artificial turf there, it had to be primitive and ridiculously hard on the ankles and, and then some on the, on the sport. It was. And, you know, the sport has changed a little bit, but literally you have a sport with sticks not a ton of padding, but the guys did wear some degree of padding and they would beat each other up with their sticks, throw a, you've had one of these uh, lacrosse balls in your hand, you know how hard they are when they hit. I mean, they're baseball hard, but maybe even uh, definitely heavier than a baseball. Um, it was a wonderful time to, again, expand what I was trying to do as a young person in the business of sports and when the league folded, Tim, uh, because I had worked um, in the Cap Center, Abe Poland owned the Caps and the Bullets at that time before they became the Wizards, uh, because we were doing pretty well attendance-wise, um, it was an entree for me to go work for the Capitals, who were just getting started at that time. And I was hired by a gentleman named Peter O'Malley, but not part of the O'Malley family, but a brilliant a uh, person who worked for Abe Poland, uh, helped build the Capitol Center and many other projects. And he had become the president of the Caps. And then after that, I went to work for the Washington Diplomats of the old North American Soccer League. And then probably got the biggest break of my life. Um, I was hired by the Oakland A's when the Haas family bought the A's at the end of 1980 for the incredible price of $11.2 million. How many crappy second basemen, Tim, can we name or not name that make more than $11 million today? Uh, Before in- we do that, though, I've got, I've got to talk, ask about your dips experience just for a, <laughs> a minute and a half. Um, Tim, so, we're almost out of time. It's okay. We're, it's fine. <laughs> so the, the, um, the diplomats that were, were uh, this was the am I guessing that this was the Madison Square Garden ownership version? Wow, Tim, you know, you know too much. I, I probably need to go back to school and check up on you. So, yes, it was a joint venture. Gulf and Western, I think, is what it yeah, was. Uh, it was a joint had. venture between MSG, a guy named Sonny Werblin, who is a genius in his own time. Uh, and MSG, as you said, Gulf and Western, they owned the Knicks, the Rangers, Madison Square Garden, several racetracks around the country, and the Danzansky family that owned a group of supermarkets in the Washington-Baltimore metro, 
and they worked uh they worked together um but i got a chance to work for sonny werblin who was the guy that uh drafted joe namath and brought him to a football team called the new york jets and sonny werblin after i was gone also helped build the meadowlands um just a, a true uh sports business genius but Gulf and Western, as you know, a global force of nature, multi-billion dollar company even then. Um, but it was it was a great experience. And this was the time that the Cosmos were just incredibly successful, playing in front of, you know, 65,000 people. Tim, we played in RFK Stadium and we did pretty well there, too. We did about 25,000 a game. And as you probably know, because you know everything, <laughs> a lot of great global players had come to the NASL. Um, Pele, Beckenbauer, Carlos Alberto, Georgie Best. And we acquired one of the most incredible athletes and people I've ever worked with in my life, the Dutch uh, national Johan Cruyff. Uh, who then went on to Barcelona later and has created and has given credit for creating total soccer. And if you talk to any football fan, F-U-T-B-O-L, uh, I think Johan is always in the top six or seven greatest players and minds in the history of soccer. No doubt. And um, uh, we we have a, an upcoming episode with uh, Thomas Rongen, who uh, played. <laughs> Please say hello to Thomas Rongen for me. If he will... would just be a little more enthusiastic, dress better and come out of his shell, um, he might have a career as a broadcaster in, in the world of soccer football. So <laughs> Thomas was there, too with us and just one of the finest people that I've ever known in the business. Yeah. And, and, and only more so because he's uh, both, he's going to be now an indirect movie star coming up uh, later this year, as we'll talk about in that episode. And, um, and his story is, uh, is it's, it's endlessly fascinating and it continues. But so let me ask you this then, um, having been to the old RFK and it's still old and was old then back in 1980, when I saw the Cosmos win uh, their third championship in 1980 against the Fort Lauderdale Strikers, the uh, NASL I can't believe we didn't. Bowl. I can't believe we didn't shake hands and meet each other then. Well, 55,000 other people, it's uh, you're uh, you're forgiven. But um, <laughs> let me ask you this, though, there was um, because of your indoor experience what was the indoor situation with the dips because i know the nasl played a little indoor especially when the after the misl kind of uh picked up on it nasl had actually pioneered it but kind of just made it only it was like a sort of a once in a while tournament kind of thing the dips did play though right didn't they play no i don't well again we're talking like 98 years ago right so we're talking 43 years ago or something like that I believe that the major indoor soccer league, am I not right? You're the expert on leagues. Wasn't yeah, there? The MIS, major... Yeah, MISL was playing. They started in 78. I okay, was so I know the we, NASL, we yeah. as the diplomats, and we shortened our name to the Dips. You want to talk about a terrible best, name? Best name and best yes. jerseys ever. Well, um, well Colorado Caribou accepted. Sorry. I'll have to see if I can find one. But we were the dips, and I'm pretty sure, uh, again, I should never do this on a show like that, like this, with a genius like you, but there was a team 
called the Washington Warthogs that were part of the Abe Poland group that were playing indoor soccer. So yeah, that was that was the Continental uh, Indoor League in the whatever the 90s. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. You, you don't whatever indoor that might have been played during those three years you were there, you, you probably it, it's clearly it's a blind spot in your mind. And, and it's probably for a reason. I think maybe. Well, the- no, I, I, I know the dips, at least during my time there, which was 78 through 80 when the dips folded. Um, we did not play indoor unless you can prove to me we did. But I think the Washington Warthogs, it keeps coming back to me, uh, did play. Uh, but I don't have any Warthogs swag, so I can't. No, I, I, I think you're right. And also, you could you can also be forgiven because the, the Diplomats came back in 81. Right. Another franchise sold, I think. OK, well, that's so uh, last thing before we, we move you to Oakland. Um what what was your sense of the NASL in those years? And when did you perhaps lose confidence or arch your eyebrow a little that perhaps that this was not going to be long term? Well, I never arched my eyebrows because I'm a Brooklyn born, Long Island raised uh, kid and actually played soccer in high school because there weren't very many places around the country that had really embraced the game. Uh, some places in the Northeast, especially Long Island, the Baltimore, Washington area, a uh, few other places, but you hadn't seen the real growth yet. Um, and I loved the game. Um, and the our challenge was what many leagues uh, go through, and you've chronicled this, it doesn't matter that much that you have a Washington Capitals that are selling out games or other teams, the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Uh, we were doing pretty well. And there were a few others in the league at that time. But if you were playing the Philadelphia Fury Adams or whatever their multiplicity of names were in front of 2000 people or Johan Cruyff was playing in LA in the, you know, in the Rose Bowl in front of 3,000 people, you can't make it. So the disparity between top and bottom was way too great. And Madison Square Garden, which came into the league because Sonny Werblin was friends with Steve Ross, the head of Warner Communications, um, and he could see what the Cosmos were doing. Ross, a great salesman, convinced Werblin that he should come in. And then after a while, Sonny said, well, we're not the Cosmos. Um, and I don't see this league really going um, any place in the future. And they pulled out. Yeah. And, and, and there was also a time when, um, you know, the fact that Gulf and Western had showed up. Right. Uh, and Sonny Werblin right. obviously had been part of and, and Tom Werblin, the, the Werblins had been yep. part of the, 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 the diaspora or the, the connective tissue of the New York Cosmos and the Giants up in the there's there a whole um it was a corporatization or a rush, right? You had Lipton Tea and you had Warehouser and you had all the – or a Georgia Pacific. Mm-hmm. They were all kinds of these corporations were kind of not unlike the early days of the original um, North American Soccer League in, in the late 60s or the right. teams that created that. There was sort of this uh, gold mine sort of rush, I guess, towards – the next big thing and having a, having a team. And I guess once people had a team, they figured out, Oh my God, we have to actually run these teams. Yeah. I mean, if you were the Memphis rogues or somebody else, I mean, the Fort Lauderdale strikers, I think they did pretty darn well at the time. But what I remember 
um, and you know it could be clouded by history. Um, Warner Communications would take their team to different markets, and when you have you know Pele, Beckenbauer, uh, Giorgio Chinaglia, um, seven or eight incredible stars, um, the amount of business that you could do for Warner Communications in Brazil, in Argentina, in Europe was significant. But if you were taking your local team someplace, a whole different story. So I totally agree with you. It was a different equation between the Cosmos. And as I said, uh, Tampa Bay Rowdies, you remember soccer's just a kick in the grass. The strikers owned by the Robbie family of the Dolphins, right? And MSG, the New England team. Uh, but there was such a disparity between top. I remember, you know, you mentioned that 55,000 crowd. I still have the front page of the Washington Post. Uh, not the sports section, but the front page with that. And then two weeks later, we played in Philly. Uh, and I again, I can't remember whether it was the Fury or the Adams or whatever, in front of about 6,000 people. And that's when I knew, not good, danger, Will Robinson, got to go. Yeah, that was the Fury. That's uh, and that, that's a whole other ownership group. That's uh, Rick Wakeman <laughs> and Paul Simon. And uh, Rick Wakeman uh, oh, actually says he wants to talk about it. So I'm didn't looking at Elton that. John or somebody. That was the Aztecs. Yeah, back in the, the mid 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so I, I don't mean to, to, to keep you in this divot. Tell me how the Oakland Athletics uh, opportunity comes uh, comes about. And um, I'm surprised it wasn't the stompers of the NASL that perhaps lured you to the West Coast. Uh, no. Um, so, uh, you know, here's Charlie Finley and what has happened can happen. You know, you look at where the A's are at now, lowest in attendance, terrible record. They've basically traded away all their quality players or the players have left. You mean like this week? Uh, oh, like this week. Um, you know, this horrible situation, uh, because uh, I'll get to it in a moment, what the A's in Oakland mean to me and my family's life. And Charlie Finley was in the World Series and won three in a row. And people go, what? And you go, can you say Reggie Jackson, Sal Bando, Catfish, Hunter, Raleigh, Fingers, and on and on and on. 72, 73, 74. And then for whatever reason, Finley in the late 70s decided he was going to opt out and he was going to move the team to Denver. Uh, he was working on a deal with Marvin Davis, who was a big oil man at that time. The A's in 79, you could check me, drew 326,000 people for the whole season. Uh, lowest baseball attendance in the last 900 years. Then in 80, Finley hires Billy Martin, come back to Berkeley where you were born. You're always going to create some positive controversy you can manage. They went up to 800,000. Um, and the Haas family came in because Kaiser Aluminum and Chemical Company, run by a fantastic gentleman named Cornell Meyer, they were Oakland-based, and they were looking at possibly buying the A's. Again, $11.2 But the world aluminum market tanked, and Cornell Meyer was friends with Walter Haas. They were leading business people in the Bay Area and said, Walter, would you have any interest in this? Walter sent his son, Wally, and his son-in-law, Roy Eisenhart, one of the smartest human beings on planet Earth, to negotiate with Finley. They bought the team. 
um, in late 1980, and they hired a gentleman named Matt Levin, L-E-V-I-N-E, Matt Trailblazer, lives 10 minutes from where I live today, one of the smartest people that I've ever come in contact. And he, like Walter O'Malley, saw the future of sports business uh, back in the 70s, became a consultant to a number of commissioners in different sports. And because Oakland, it's amazing, but Oakland was in a lawsuit at that time with uh, Finley about how he was Uh, trying to move the team, and Matt was hired as an expert witness and then ultimately hired by the Haas family uh, when they bought the team as their senior business consultant. I became an acolyte to Matt earlier in my life because I just was taken by how he saw the future of the business before there was one, and he recommended to the Haas family that they talk to me And I was hired, and my first day on the job was December 3rd, 1980. I'll never forget it. All right, what's this? 417 Helmets. My goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417helmets.com, collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show. Uh, Fairly often, our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, What is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past, and you'd like to commemorate some of them in mini helmet form, really cool, sort of literal, high quality, professionally, you know, made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is, uh, and just about every league that's ever existed, save from the NFL. Uh, we're talking XFL, uh, old versions of uh, the WFL. Remember the World Football League? How about various teams, both current and past, in the Canadian Football League? But also NCAA teams of your and NAIA college football teams of your. All of them and many, many, many more. Available for you at 417helmets.com. But, oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues. And, yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch, and they're making more uh, all the time. And, by the way, custom helmets can be made, too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away all of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more and uh we've got a promo code for you too for whatever you purchase all of them all of your purchases 10 percent off all of those uh when you use the promo code good seats again promo code good seats for 10 percent off all of your purchases at 417 helmets.com thanks judd and uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out and now back to our conversation So it's very interesting that we're recording this episode uh, the, um, 
the day our um, our current episode is about a uh, a very influential minor league team in the system at that time, the Huntsville. Right. Uh, right. Uh, and Huntsville um, ha- was just literally stocked with future Oakland A uh, stars that uh, by the end of the decade, the 1980s, uh, the Huntsville stars were literally the stars of the A's, including a world championship in 1989. An interesting one for sure. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely right. And was, was that was that genius luck or a little of both? Well, I, I give Finley credit because he had such a thin front office and many of the decisions that he made, which won three consecutive World Series, were ones that he made. Uh, they had no business operation. You know, they were thin uh, but Finley had Dick Williams as his manager. And, you know, you look at, again, you're the chronicler of all of this, the Kansas City minor league team for the Yankees, all those years that, you know, they would just promote guys from Kansas City right to the starting lineup of the New York Yankees and win World Series. And one thing, if I might, um, I was lucky enough to become friends with Vita Blue and Vita passed a few yeah, days ago, way me. too young. At 73, um, just a magnificent person, way beyond his incredibleness as a pitcher. And of course, he was part of those championship A's teams. Um, so let us remember the great Vida Blue as positively as we can. Again, we were the beneficiary, Tim, because Finley had essentially stripped bare the quality of the team. There was nobody selling anything. Um, And we came in in 1981 and Billy was the manager, a guy named Ralph Wiley, who has since passed. Uh, He was a writer for the Oakland Trib and then Sports Illustrated. He wrote a column that I happened to see called Billy Ball, how the A's were playing. Guy would try to steal second base. So the, the guy on third base uh, could could steal home because the catcher was confused when the guy between first and second, the Oakland A, would fall down on purpose. Uh, and so that became Billy Ball. We worked with a genius called Hal Reine Advertising, Jeff Goodby, Rich Silverstein, Graham Kirk, created Billy Ball. We're one of the first teams to really have full-fledged advertising And in no time, we went from 326 season tickets to 3,200 season tickets before we played our first game. And you want to know something about marketing. It's really cool when your team wins their first 11 games of that season, which we did, and won 17 of our first 18 And Billy Ball was on the cover of Time Magazine, a lot of other publications around the country. And that helped us that helped us take off, except there was a baseball strike that year. We lost a whole bunch of games at home in which we were averaging over 30,000 people a game. That will always be a stick upside my head. But then in uh, succeeding years, we were pretty mediocre, 82 through 85. But then our farm system really started to pay off, and that created Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco, Walter Weiss, Dave Stewart, and on and on and on. Dennis Eckersley, Harry Steinbeck. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so that's and that, and obviously that's that's got to be at that point uh, earthquake interruption, notwithstanding. <laughs> 
that had to be somewhat of a pinnacle, at least, or a confirmation of your career choice at that point. No? Well, uh, because we're talking back and forth through multiple sports, I, I just the San Jose earthquakes just jumped into mind, right? When you mentioned, uh, yeah, you guys are gonna, you guys are gonna create an earthquake. Um, here's, here's somebody literally calling me in the background to talk about the Oakland A's. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, it was it, the A's and the giants in the world series, the rest of the country didn't care until a 6.9 earthquake or whatever the, uh, the hit was during that time, um, it was really gut-wrenching, um, but the two teams worked together. There was a 10-day hiatus. Faye Vincent was the commissioner at that time. A lot of people said the World Series either should have been canceled or moved to another market. Bob Lurie, the owner of the Giants, Walter Haas, the owner of the A's, meeting in a candlelit room at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco with a lot of other constituencies said, no, uh, I think if we can wait a bit and we can re when we can restart, it would help to heal the market. And that's exactly what happened. All right. But this is we're going to diverge from your career path. And we'll use that in, an, in our next conversation because there's lots of other interesting twists, turns and forgotten franchises along the way in that. But I do want to pivot uh, and keep you in the Oakland Bay area because on a number of fronts. Number one, you you wound up kind of staying there or domiciling yourself there, right? Exactly. Uh, Lifestyle wise, number one. Number two, obviously there were other opportunities there and on the on the, on the west coast. But the, your your new book uh, with with Dave Newhouse, right, is um, uh, is really sort of all about this Oakland California dynamic around exactly. sports. And I I guess I want to kind of pivot hard into. Your original uh, assessments of this market, right, which historically had always been kind of the, I wouldn't call it the, 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 the sister market or the secondary market of the Bay Area, but it, I think it's lost on a lot of people as to why Oakland became kind of this hub and haven and and uh, almost around the same time yep. that most of these pro leagues and even startup leagues, right, were looking westward for the first time, right? And the two dynamic facilities that were built, you know, within a stone's throw of each other, the arena and the Coliseum, whatever names you wanted to call them, <laughs> state-of-the-art yeah. facilities in the late 60s, which had to be a huge advantage for uh anybody seeking a better a better pasture somewhere outside of say an east coast or a midwest location i had a clear slate when i walked into the a's office as i said on december 3rd 1980 um i knew what the downside was but i hadn't spent any time in oakland and when i literally started walking around town driving around town and saw lake merritt uh saw the suburbs of the east bay saw the oakland hills saw jack london square right on the water um right close to city hall and and saw the incredible transportation nucleus that they had with the bay area rapid transit which was relatively new at that time the incredible opportunities that we had at the coliseum the oakland alameda county coliseum at that time the arena um, I was, I had my eyes open to say, this is incredible. 
because I also had some great teachers in terms of the Haas family, Sandy Alderson, who joined us a little bit later, and some other very, very smart people, including Matt Levin, who I mentioned earlier, we looked at the market as Northern California, and you're all over this, Tim, you understand it, but many people just say, oh, it's only Oakland. Well, Oakland is San Francisco. Oakland is the Silicon Valley. Oakland is Sacramento. Oakland is east to the Nevada border. And that, at that time, 6 million people with some pretty deep pockets. So we busted out of just the Oakland city limits, not because we were afraid, but because the opportunity was there. And as you remember, the Giants were playing in Candlestick Park, where you could freeze your butt off in June, July, and August. And they were thinking of moving um, at that time, right, to Tampa or some other place. So it was the perfect time with this incredible start that no one saw coming, 17 and 1. Billy Martin grabbing headlines, a little a group of players like Ricky Henderson and others starting to mature and people just coming to the Oakland Coliseum, which which was one of the easiest entrances and exits of any sports facility I think I've ever seen, which is important. And um, we sold our butts off and ultimately got it to the point where we were averaging two and a half million fans in the mid 80s to the early 90s. And that was just through hard work but not secret, Tim. We looked at it as Northern California as our market, even though our headquarters and our ball club was playing right smack dab in the middle of 66th Avenue in Oakland. How how would you describe both the A's specifically and by extension, Oakland's branded teams more broadly Um as shall we say, targeting the overall Bay Area market and the Bay Area market, just for those who haven't really sort of you know consulted a a map recently, right? It, it's a to say it's unique is is an understatement, right? Because it goes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, many many miles. I mean, San Jose and further south to the bottom, and 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 all the northern um, counties above both uh, uh, San Francisco and Oakland. I mean, but you're hinting at sort of the northern, you know, where there's a lot of uh, not only wine. At vineyards and stuff, but also, you know, lots of dough, right? Lots of money. So it's a well uh, capitalized market, shall we say, especially uh, the sixth richest marketplace in the right. country, if so, you can believe whatever so, you can believe, right? Right. So, I mean, w w um, I guess, was there any uh, help us on the inside? Yes. Is sort of a, is there a sort of an internal working map that uh, both sides of the, of the bay kind of work with when they're trying to target their sports audiences or? How do you know oh, it's full that? it's full scale hand to hand combat? I mean, I stayed friends um, to this day with Pat Gallagher, who was my, you know, contemporary at the Giants. And we went at each other. Uh, the Raiders and the 49ers went at each other. Um, the Warriors didn't have, you know, the Sacramento uh, Kings at that time. But Oakland um, and I say this in the most positive uh, point, Tim, Oakland is a gritty place. It's tough. You know, they can handle it. And the Raiders proved that. You only, you know, how long did they promote the black hole? Uh, they're trying to do it in Las Vegas. You know, good luck. You're not going to transfer that DNA that was there. 
the Warriors through many, many years of not quality basketball. Uh, and again, how many millions of people will be tuning in tonight to see if these back and forth blowouts will take place or somebody will win two in a row uh, with the magic of 364 consecutive sellouts before they went across the bridge to enter their new Taj Mahal at Chase Center. Raiders take the NFL uh, and the state's 800 million bucks and build Allegiant Stadium. The A's, um, they're on their uh, Bermuda Triangle cruise on the SS Groundhog Day as to where they're going to be. But Tim, I would say it was toughness. It's a tough market in the most positive sense, a prideful market, one of the most diverse markets in the country. And that's another point that I don't understand what baseball is thinking when they're losing African-American players, they're losing African-American fans. And Oakland, you want to say uh, Dave Stewart, uh, Veda Pinson, Frank Robinson, Willie Stargell. Oh, and a guy named Kurt Flood, who sort of changed the economic focus of players um, through his Supreme Court uh, work in, in the Reserve Clause. So um, the challenge is that Oakland... Um, lacked the kind of business leadership and political leadership that was necessary to fight back. And that gets us to the point of goodbye Oakland, where potentially the third team could be gone, the A's, to Vegas. And on one location for many, many years, 10 championships, multiple halls of famer in all three leagues, you might be left with zero. And you're not going to see in our lifetime an NFL, an MLB team, or an NBA team ever playing in Oakland again as their home city. That's or, tragic. Or any of the secondary leagues or or the startup leagues that that envisioned having a national footprint and all that kind of stuff. Oakland was always a very convenient and and vital place to to to, to domicile, like the Oakland Invaders of the USFL, for example, or yeah, any of that stuff, right? And no. I guess the the sort of with the last couple of minutes we've got left with you here, um, and we'll, let's let's pick this up with another conversation at some point. I know, sure, not only I but our audience is going to eat this up. No, I'm I'm happy to do it because I want you to say hi to Thomas Rangan and and all these other people just for that alone. But <laughs> I I guess that the uh, how do you characterize then the Oakland part of the DMA now in retrospect because. If indeed the A's do wind up moving out, right? I mean, the Oakland was very much almost the the modern day in the 1960s onward, certainly, um, uh, expression of being a major league city requires you to have major league sports, right? That was very much right. I've been the 60s and the 70s. I even go dating back to the late 50s when when the two baseball teams moved the West Coast. Um, does that mean that Oakland has lost? its major league status as a city and as a metropolitan area, or perhaps maybe sports is going in one direction and maybe Oakland wisely, or maybe not so is going in another. That is uh, what is causing migraine headaches and causing people to buy Pepto-Bismol who are A's fans or maybe sports fans in general, Tim. There's no simple reason other than John Fisher has owned this team for 18 years. Hard to comprehend. He's never once spoken to his fan base directly, uh, the media directly. 
and nobody really knows what his strategy is other than he clearly wants to increase his net asset value. I understand that. These are all privately held businesses other than right the Packers and part of the Celtics, I think. Um, but um, you owe it to the fans who are spending the money. Um, it is a public trust. Uh, John has broken the public trust. He's self-inflicted uh, disaster from attendance and uh, team performance. Um, and there's not a strong enough task force of leaders that have stepped forward in Oakland to say, uh-uh, this is not going to happen. We're going to fight like hell to keep this team here. And clearly the commissioner um, has approved, you know, a move to Las Vegas, but there are still many, many more hurdles, including a convertible domed ballpark, which is hard for me to say, for one5 five or more billion dollars of which nobody has jumped into the fray to say, oh, I got that. No problem, including Vegas. So they took care of the NFL, whether they're going to take care of the A's or Major League Baseball is a gigantic multi-billion dollar question. Um, it comes to the fact um, as we get into the red zone here, even though wrong sport, a lack of teamwork, leadership and trust between the owner of the Oakland A's, Major League Baseball, the elected officials in Oakland, and the lack of a clear group of business leaders leaving the fans holding their palms um, upside going, what is going to happen? Um, how can we do something to keep this team? Because John Fisher, as I understand it, um, has refused the anybody's interest in purchasing the team. Joe Lacob, the incredible successful owner of the Warriors, uh, has said many times, I have a deal with John Fisher. If he's going to sell, I'm going to buy to keep the team in Oakland. Well, only time will tell, Tim. All right, last question. So, and related. So, assuming the A's do, do the previously unthinkable and do move and leave Oakland proper bereft of any major league sports franchise. Um, right. You see Oakland ever coming back in some way, shape or form, or would you argue that pro sports has moved on to this sort of, you know, crazy uh, expensive level and maybe Oakland uh, perhaps focuses more on other things that makes it unique and, and maybe just kind of shrugs his shoulders or I'd never, I'd there. never, yeah, I'd never rule it out. I mean, you've got a USL team there in the Oakland roots and they're more rooted in Oakland than the A's will ever be. You have a uh, heavy talk through the African-American sports and entertainment group of bringing a WNBA team to the arena. You see how sports is changing every day. I love my time in Oakland. I have great regard for the community and never say never, but this will be a significant blow if you lose the third team, and we'll have to pick it up when we talk about more stuff next time. All right. Our thanks to Andy. And as I mentioned at the outset of our chat, uh, we are going to have Andy back uh, relatively soon for another episode to uh, kind of uh, get to the second part of uh, his um, uh, just crazy quilt 
of uh, professional and uh, otherwise sports career stops uh, beyond the Oakland A's, as we discussed, uh, and his stops in you know Washington, D.C. prior and all that stuff, Billy Ball, et cetera. Uh, the Vancouver Grizzlies is a big part of that in the, in the 2000. Uh, well, we'll talk about that. Uh, he had a, a, a nice cup of coffee with the San Francisco 49ers uh, during the um, the planning for their ultimate move to Levi's Stadium. Uh, and as a consultant has uh, worked with all kinds of uh, entities and teams and leagues and conferences and tournaments and, and all kinds of stuff. And we'll uh, we'll kind of get to some of the uh, more interesting and, and wackier ones of those in our previous conversation. And again, it'll be another opportunity to kind of check in on where the Oakland A's situation uh, might be. And uh, we're going to target probably late June, early July for that second conversation. So stay tuned for that. And we'll, we'll have some more nuggets of fun stuff there for sure. But you can follow Andy um, and his exploits uh, on Twitter at Kufish. That's at, it's a K-O-U-F-I-S-H at Kufish. Um, don't ask me about uh, where that comes from, but uh, perhaps that's a conversation for, for our next uh, our next chat. Um, the book, again, must get, must read, fun and interesting, especially if uh, you're, uh, you're just curious as to sort of uh, perhaps the psyche, perhaps, of Oakland. Goodbye, Oakland, winning, wanderlust, and a sports town's fight for survival. It is published by Triumph, and it is co-written uh, uh, with uh, Andy's partner, a longtime sports writer uh, in the Bay Area, Dave Newhouse. Uh, of course, you can go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 305, and you will find a convenient link to this book, courtesy of our friends at Amazon. Uh, and when you uh, do purchase the book that way, you will give us a couple of uh, of coins of uh, referral love. We appreciate that very much. And while you're there at goodseatstillavailable.com, check out all the other episodes you just may have missed. And of course, the best way to ensure that you get every single stinking episode of the show, make sure that you subscribe or follow us wherever you get podcasts. Wherever you get them, we're basically, we're there. There's pretty much no excuse. So you don't find us in a podcast environment that you you enjoy uh, or know of, let us know, will you? Because uh, we'd like to think we're pretty comprehensive out there. Uh, on social media, you'll find us as well. You'll find us on Facebook, a good seat still available. Uh, on Instagram, you'll find us a good seat still available. And on Twitter, you'll find us at good seats still. Uh, our email address is hello at good seats still available.com. And uh, I forgot at the top of the show, I wanted to uh, make sure we get full credit. That clip that you heard was from a really uh, interesting uh, five minute or so long piece. Uh, from Jonathan Bloom of NBC Bay Area. That's a KNTV Channel 11 in San Jose's uh, NBC branding. I believe you'll be able to find that on um, uh, on their streaming uh, channel called NBC Bay Area. Uh, but it, it's a great little piece. It's well uh, well shot. It's called Still Rooting in Oakland. It's on YouTube and stuff. We'll have a, a, a link to it on our our website, uh, perhaps also in our social media feeds and stuff. Uh, just great. Well done. Really well done. And I was uh, just tickled to find it. And uh, just it's a great piece. Uh, and um, speaking of great, how about the great Jerry Payne? Jerry Payne, audio excellence. Thank you, sir, as always, for your uh, knob twiddling uh, expertise. Uh, extraordinaire. And uh, thank you for listening next week. More fun, frivolity. Stay tuned. Stay safe. And uh, hopefully Memorial Day is a safe and fun one. And uh, we look forward to uh, being in your earbuds then. Take care until then. Bye-bye.